what if I could look into the heart of a perfect stranger and somehow see what would make them happier than anything else in the world and then choreograph a perfect moment for a perfect stranger? I mean, that's the landing page to everything Nirvana. I, I see you. I want you to see you. I want everybody to see you. There's the vent. That's my roadmap. I walk in and there's this little eight, nine-year-old boy wearing this bright blue shirt surrounded by all these cardboard boxes. He built an arcade out of cardboard boxes. And this was his dad's auto parts shop. And this was the last day of summer. And he'd come in with his dad every day to go to work. And his dad couldn't afford a babysitter. And so he built this arcade. And I mean, it had a little office. It was incredible. And he asked me if I wanted to play. And I said, well, how does it work? And he's all excited. He's like, well, for, for $1, you get four turns. Uh, but for $2, you get a fun pass and you get 500 turns. And I'm like, ah, screaming deal. This kid's a hustler. That's a great upsell. Like, I know an upsell. I've been hustling a one second <laughs> film for 10 years. I'm like, I'm in. Here's my two bucks. And he gets really excited. He like stamps my hand with a little stamp he has. And uh, he's not ready. Like he, he runs, he's like, wait a second. He runs back and he comes back. And, and then later I couldn't stop thinking about it. I came back and I asked his dad if I could make a short film about his son's arcade. And I, at this point, like I said, I, I wasn't planning to be in it. I just wanted to make this film about this little boy's arcade. And, and um, his dad said, you know, that would be great, but you should realize, you should know that you've been my son's first and only customer. You know, every day he's come to work with me and nobody else had stopped to play. And and so this was the moment where I felt like I saw into the stranger's heart, perfect stranger's heart, and I knew what they wanted more than anything. And, and this was what I'd been looking for. And uh, and so that's that was what the short film was about. For me, it was about creating the perfect moment for this incredible creative entrepreneur who happened to be nine years old that happened to be nine and happened to have built an entire cardboard arcade. And I think it's, again, what I love about the story, and I'm hoping that my listeners, our listeners here today, can feel is there's a mirror in all of us, right? We, we see and we react to the things and then also tend to things that we didn't tend to in ourselves. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share the space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. It is, as always, my distinct pleasure to hold this space and conversations with dear friends, new friends, and people doing the work. And for the last, I think, eight years now, Nirvan Mullick and I have got to hang out in all parts of the world, literally all parts of the world, 
and share stages and dinners and even some gambling in Las Vegas together, uh, which is off-brand for both of us. Um, but Nirvan Malik is one of my favorite humans that is a conduit to story uh, and narrative and helping people understand the creativity in all of us. He produced an incredible viral mini doc or short doc called Kane's Arcade, which we will talk about. If you have not seen it, it will be the first link in the bio. He worked on the Earth to Paris campaign, um, giving us all a better understanding around COP21 uh, of what's happening with global climate change through a lens of play as well. So instead of just the doom, gloom, and severity, allowing us to be engaged in a way that feels uh, inclusive, interactive, and joyful. And I think in all of the stuff he's done that I've got to either be a part of or witness from a, a, a clapping distance, um, it just it holds that same energy. So director, storyteller, creative, advocate, Nirvan Mullick, it's always an honor to share space with you and welcome to Better. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It's an honor to be here and a great excuse to just get to sit down and have a conversation with you because it's been too long. This is it. I mean, this is really why I started the Pod and Radio Show, folks. Uh, to, to let you in on the dirty little secret, it's really to hang out with my friends who I never get to see um, and also to bring the tools. So, Nirvan, I introduce you that way. How do you introduce yourself these days? Oh, it depends who I'm talking to. Who, who's asking me who I am? Because <laughs> I'm like Imagine many you different have, people, right? Right. So you have a global audience at this moment and okay. everybody that you can imagine. I am just a guy trying to make things that I care about um, for people that I care about. And I care about everybody. So I'm trying to make stuff um, that will resonate with people that resonates with me. So trying to find that where that intersects, where like my curiosity connects with other people's humanity. Um, and if I get a chance to connect that to doing something good in the world, on, I mean, I think just telling a story that needs to be shared is something good in the world. And you don't know if it's going to be like on the nose, social impact, quote unquote, you know, but um, when, when there is a chance to kind of combine those two things together uh, and I get to tell a story that I care about while supporting an issue that I care about, like that always feels to me like I'm getting to do what what I feel like I I'm, I'm like uniquely love doing, you know? I don't know if I uniquely love doing it. Maybe that's not the right word, but like those moments where you feel like you're walking your best walk and mm. and in the stride, in a flow and and working on something you honestly care about, like I, I live for those moments. Yeah, well it comes through. I think if you witness anybody in their true artistic integrity, but also in the flow of that integrity, the product on the other side of it, we it's kind of like the umami of flavor, right? But for for your eyes and the rest of your being, which is like, why does why does this hit me so hard? And it's I think when we boil it down, it's the authenticity of the of the pieces uh, and what goes into them because you can see the true messaging. And you have been consistently, and we use this as this is jargon at this point, but you've always dissented yourself from the message. Nirvan doesn't show up aside from in Kane's Arcade in any of the other things that I've seen, right? And in Kane's Arcade, your joy is an integral character, right? Like it's it's a part. I was not going to be in that. Like initially when I wanted to make the short film, that short film, the idea was not for me to be in it. Um, uh, but when I found out that I, I played a unique role in this kid's life, being his first and only customer, um, <laughs> I, I suddenly realized that I, I, 
I've so wind back twenty some years ago, and I'm a student at college. You know, reading a book um, called uh, Nausea by this French philosopher named Jean Paul Sartre, and uh, and the book has this artist character who, who thinks about this idea of perfect moments. Like, what is a perfect mm. moment? Do they exist? And can you create them? And you know, I was like nineteen kind of trying to find my way and in, in a very romantic, idealistic part of my life. And I put the book down. I had like, I started thinking about that idea. It's like sometimes you hear a phrase or a word and it provides a title or it encapsulates a feeling that you've had your whole life, right? Something you've been looking for. And suddenly when you, you, you have a way to describe it, you start seeing it everywhere. You're like, okay, that's what I'm going to call that thing. And, um, and now all of a sudden I had some language, uh, to define this idea that had always resonated with me. And I, and I thought about, is it possible to create a perfect moment? And, um, and I had two weird ideas that jumped in my head at the same time. The first idea was to spend my whole life just trying to create one perfect moment. And the way that translated into a real thing was that I would spend my whole life making one second of film as perfectly as possible. And just like toil away alone, making a little bit of um, an animation, like frames of animation, like over decades. And then at the end of my life have, you know, the 24 little images that would animate and be the summation of a lifetime of toil. And I would leave behind one second of film that literally took an entire life to make. And I was like, oh, that's a are we allowed to cut? I mean, that's a fucking weird idea, right? And I was like, okay, <laughs> not only is it a weird idea, it's a dangerous idea. Like that, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like a fun thing to do. It sounds like an interesting thing to do, but not maybe a fun way to spend your life. But I was 19. I was like, okay, scary idea. Um, but you got to listen to your ideas too. And, and then at the same time, I had like a simultaneous idea of creating a perfect moment. And it was, um, what if I could look into the heart of a perfect stranger mm. and somehow see what would make them happier than anything else in the world and then choreograph a perfect moment for a perfect stranger? I mean, it, you, that's the landing page to everything, Nirvan. I, I see you. I want you to see you. I want everybody to see you. There's the van. That's my roadmap. Like, and, and so I... I started chasing this idea of perfect moments and trying to create them. And I started teaching myself film and animation. I was studying philosophy, but I didn't like the academic books and I didn't like the air of like being a philosophy professor. Mm. I liked stories. I felt that stories were better vehicles for ideas. It's the way people communicate. It's the way we pass on our values, the things we truly care about. They're all baked into storytelling. And so shifting to storytelling was my way of applying the ideas of philosophy in a way that I felt was more accessible. Like how do you, how do you take weird ideas that are meaningful to you and bring them to everybody, you know, cause everybody cares about these things. It's just, you can disguise ideas with fancy language and make it very exclusive mm. or you can find like just common ways of talking about things. The best politicians are the, people who put complex ideas into, you know, something that a six-year-old could understand, you know, like, 
And the best way to explain things, like on Reddit, there's a, a section called explain it to me like I'm five, right? Like <laughs> if you can break something down and describe it like you would to a five-year-old, like that's the language we need to communicate with because inside we're still all kids, you know? We're still all kids. And we still have that creative spirit of kids and that desire to play like kids and that desire to just be pure and authentic like kids. And so, you know, the trick is how do you stay like a kid as you become an adult? So this is going to be a perfect segue for us to, to move into part two. But just in that whole modality of explaining something, you know, in five seconds and also play and where those two things intersect. I've got to do some work in, in some of the Ivy League spaces in Stanford, USC, et cetera, in design thinking and that, that work. When you walk into a design thinking lab, quote unquote lab, you got to be careful not to step on Lego. Like you got to watch out for the Play-Doh and for the pipe cleaners and for the Bristol board. And, and these are, you know, the most expensive and exclusive spaces to go in and ideate. Mm-hmm. What we've realized over the, our time is the best ideation, which was your premise with the Imagination Foundation, we're going to jump right into that in the next segment, is that when we can access that creativity, joy, and without our bias and trauma, essentially, we can create in a way that brings us such pleasure. But it's also so easy for us to communicate mm-hmm. across countries, across all, everything we, we can understand. Absolutely. Like the best way to learn is to do something you care about. And you know, it's not like there's a grade attached to it, because in real life, you don't get graded. You know, it's like something works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, you learn from it. You know, you learn a lot from the things that don't work. And, um, and it's like when you're in that kind of mode of play, like I don't like exercising just to exercise. I don't like just going to a gym and like running on a treadmill. I like to like chase a ball. I like to be chased. I like to have a goal. You know, I like to play soccer. I like to play like, I like, um, I just like it when it's, it's more of a game. Play is integral to our entire lives. Folks, you are on better. We're with my brother, Nirvan Malik. We're just warming up, as you can hear. I already feel playful on this side. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. We're with my brother and guest, Nirvan Malik, and we were just at a place where we were talking about play. So we alluded to, but didn't give you a whole bunch about Kane's Arcade, which is a centering point of, or let's call it a chapter open um, of Nirvan's career, because he creates this, and I'm going to say these words because it, it rings very true for me, having spent a lot of time with Nirvan and Kane, but selfless and um, opening short on this young man. And I'm going to let Nirvan tell the story about it because then it segues into the creation of a foundation that allows us, all of us, to participate in what we were talking about at the end of the last segment. So, Nirvan, how does Kane's Arcade happen? Well, let me give you a little bit more of the backstory because I'm going to share it in a way that I don't normally share it on stage because we, we have a little bit more time, right? And people can watch those talks online. But I want to give you like kind of the, the real story, uh, which is... I went and studied experimental animation after like falling in love with this idea of trying to create a perfect moment and spending as much time as possible creating as little as possible. Animation is a great way to spend a lot of time creating very little. And um, <laughs> I went to a school called CalArts and they had this experimental animation program, small school. And when I got in, I started making a one second film. I 
changed the format. So instead of me working by myself, it became this collaborative film. You know, there's 24 different frames in a single second of animation. It's like one of those flip books that you draw and you draw them out and then you take each picture and then it goes by really quickly. Um, but you can make those pictures as big as you want. And so we made giant murals and we had an artist directing each frame of the film and we threw a huge party and, and all these people came and helped paint it. And instead of it being me doing this thing by myself, it was like, how do we make the process into the party, you know, and celebrate the act of creativity. And it was, we did it on uh, March 8th, 2001. So a long time ago, over 20 years ago, we painted the paintings of the one second film. And I realized that this was going to be a film that would invite lots of people to help in little ways. So to fund it, I started selling producer credits for a dollar or more. Yes. So anybody in the world could become a producer of my one-second film. And then we got it blown up onto IMAX. So it's going to be a one-second IMAX film that you can produce for a dollar. And I made a simple Xerox flyer, and I started pitching the film to people after I finished college out on the streets. And I was a really shy animator kid, like an introvert. And I was just driven by this idea. And I would be super nervous going up to strangers, like asking them, if they wanted to like give me a dollar to produce my little art film. Um, but it was this way of bringing this experimental idea, this conceptual idea, like really out there idea, and marketing it in a way that made it accessible. Because people mm. are like, yeah, I'll be a producer for a dollar. And then I started like sneaking into parties and film festivals and getting celebrities to donate a few bucks. Kevin Bacon gave me $10. Uh, Stephen Goldberg gave me like tw- 12 bucks. Yes, you know, $12. That's very $12, specific. Because you're listed in the order of the amount that you donate. So you give a penny more than Colbert, you can get above him. <laughs> and then he asked for his credit to be on IMDb. And then IMDb started listing all of the producers of the one second film. Yes. And people started donating online. I had a little PayPal button. And long story short, I worked on this for 10 years. I, I started a nonprofit. I got this guy named Ben Goldhurst to join my nonprofit as a board member. And, he's, and, and they, I built this five-phase plan to scale up this idea into other collaborative, longer films that be made during events around the world where people would help paint paintings and address different issues and raise money for causes, but using art and creativity as a platform for dialogue. And um, I had over 14,000 producers at one point. You know, I, We were raising like $500 a day um, on, online, and I built the first, one of the first, if not the first, automated crowdfunding platforms that the founders of both Indiegogo and Kickstarter um, said that they looked at when they were building their own platforms. Yes. It was, it was early. It was early and it was weird. And, but it was like, I loved it. I mean, but I was also not making any money. Like I was putting everything. So it was a one second film of this animation made of these paintings, but the credits listing everybody who was helping, we had over 14,000 producers from, you know, Stephen Colbert and Christina Ricci and Ben Harper and, and all these celebrities to to um, gas station attendants, my great you know great grandmothers, teachers, everybody could afford to be, you know. And the idea was to bring as many people as possible together for a second and see what we could make. And then the film is just this one second of animation made of these giant paintings, but the credits of everybody who helped make it are going to be an hour and a half long. And I've started shooting a documentary of the making of the one-second film to play during the credits. So a feature-length making of film will play during the credits of the one-second film. (laughs) 
And then after it's all done, the idea is to have a big party, uh, an auction off the paintings to raise money for charity, mm-hmm. and then do more of these. But um, you know, the recession happened. I'd been working on this one second film for ten years. I had a, a an old car that was breaking down. I had no health insurance. I was like toiling away, and and my father, um, you know, I, I'm I'm half Indian. I was born in India, and so my dad immigrated to this country to get uh, his master's degrees in engineering. He had three master's degrees in engineering, wow. and like, um, you know, most Indian dads, he he wanted me to be an engineer, a computer programmer, a doctor, but he didn't pressure me. He gave me the space to follow my own curiosity and that led me into some weird places you know suddenly his son is like you know working away on this one second film for 10 years driving a 96 Corolla with a broken door handle no health insurance or you know renting a little place with a roommate you know and he's like am I ever gonna have grandkids what are you doing with your life like (laughs) seriously like enough and and I was like it was like pushing this boulder up a hill. Like I really tried like, and I needed to raise money to finish this documentary. So people didn't really understand why, why do you need so much money to make a one second film? But um, anyway, I got to this place where I was like, this isn't working and I'm not happy and I need to stop. Um, We got kicked off IMDb, the economy collapsed. People were not in the mood to be donating to one second films anymore. And, um, and the website I built was crashing. I just couldn't keep it up. And um, so I put it aside. And I, I kind of talked to my ideas. I was like, look, uh, it's not working out right now. Like, um, it's not you, it's me. Um, <laughs> I'll come back to you, I promise. But let me go take care of some sh- some stuff and, yeah. and, and come back stronger, come back better. And so um, I'd always turn down jobs for other people when people were asking me, because I was like, I'm working on my one second film, working on my one second film. Mm. Um, but during the course of making that, I learned how to make things viral, right? Like I, I made a little short film and you can see it of me running around Sundance, sneaking into parties, asking celebrities to produce this one second film. And that got put on the homepage of YouTube back when YouTube did that. Wow. Um, and we made like six or seven grand in a day. Amazing. So this is sort of the backstory that led me with this broken down car. You know, I started doing jobs, I started making money, and I was going to finally fix my old car. And I go to this used auto parts store, this junkyard down in East L.A., and that's where I met Kane, this nine-year-old boy with a dream. Right. And so that's where we're going to pause because... This, I mean, this story, I'm smiling and glowing over here energetically for a bunch of reasons of the things you just said, of the hustle I've always known about you. Like, there's so much to pull out of there, the determination, but also the setting aside of one's social anxiety, right? Being like, straight up, I am an introverted dude that like, likes to be in front of my computer, yeah. but let me go harass Kevin Bacon and Stephen Colbert for the 10 bucks. Like, that's, that's it my heart would be pounding. I would be nauseous inside. I bet. I bet. Looking for the bathroom just to have a quick throw-up break. Like, I'll be back in a second. It's beautiful, but I, I think the, the thing I want to close this segment with is I had to have a conversation with my ideas. The honoring mm-hmm. of those and the closure of those containers versus the suppression and compartmentalization of the things that we want to bring to life as creatives, as social justice folks, as people in the world, 
we all have dreams. And if we say, you know, we've held this dream, we held this dream, and then we set the dream aside without acknowledgement of setting it aside or a discussion, we're like, that's crazy. Those are just thoughts. Like, no, that's a whole energy. That's a whole part of your being that deserves that recognition. So I love that. That sent shivers down my spine. We are at the part where we are getting a, an actual part for this old broken down car. And it's not broken down car, but it has, it has, it needs some love. And we move to East LA in this story and we get introduced to Kane as we come back on Better Keep It Locked with my brother Nirvana. Welcome back to Better. We're with my guest, Nirvan Mullick, longtime friend and brother. And we were just talking about, I asked a question about Kane's Arcade, which gave us a story I've never heard before. I've heard bits and pieces of it, but the idea of chasing your dreams and pushing past your comfort, particularly um, for people who define as introverted or as many of us define extroverted introverts, small bursts, that's, that's my jam. Uh, and then being able to chase your dreams and, and walk into rooms to hustle 10 bucks from the Kevin Bacons and the Stephen Colbert's of the world. Um, that's challenging business. That's challenging business right there. There was this one moment where I was in a bar with a friend. It was an empty bar. And Kiefer Sutherland walks in with a group of friends. And all of a sudden, my heart sank because I went from having this nice, intimate moment with my friend I have to get up, walk over there, and ask Kiefer Sutherland for a dollar for my one-second film. I have to. I have to. I yeah. have to. Like I, <laughs> I owe this idea, like to do this. So I, yes, I swallow my pride. I walk over. I'm awkwardly standing there. They notice me. They're like, "What's up?" And I'm like, "I'm shaking. Like my voice is trembling." And I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, have have any of you guys heard of the one sec? Uh, heard of a, a one-second film? Or I, f- I forget how I said. It. It's like I'm making a one-second film." And one of his friends says, oh, my God, yeah, I'm a producer on that. Yes. He had already donated yes. a dollar. And so the work I had done over the past many years, and then Kiefer was like, what? What's this? And, the, and he explained, as my producer, he explained the film As my producer. <laughs> and then Kiefer was like, all right, I want in. And he wrote me a check for like $600 because he wanted to, you know. The top billing. The top billing. And I had these little lenticular like, giveaway cards. And anyway, he was really sweet. That's amazing. And also, I mean, there's, there's an analogous in there too, which is, you know, the work that you do consistently precedes you. And it's a beautiful thing to have your nerves relaxed by somebody else who can espouse your story, which is the point of, you know, people getting excited. And the work changes you. It helps, mm. you know, to probably use a little bit of what this is about. It helps you get better, right? So you get better while you do it. And then that helps you make something better. And then that helps you get better. You know, it's like... um a virtuous upcycle where you do good and it helps you get better at doing good. And then you get to do good better. (laughs) And we have a new trailer for the show, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody in between. That's what we've got. So Nirvan, you pull up in East LA to this garage, Kane Monroy. I had just gone on a date where my door handle, when I tried to open my car for her, the door handle snapped off in my hands. (laughs) It right. wasn't and, meant and, to be. And I still didn't fix it right away. I like 
I kept opening that car door handle broken and I would feel the sharp edges of the plastic on my hands every time I opened that car door and I could feel the failure of my life on my hands in that door handle. <laughs> and so finally, like I'm, I start a little business and I'm helping people tell stories and, and, and do digital media strategy and kind of campaigns and some of the stuff I taught myself to do uh, web development, like all these things I learned in making the one second film, project-based learning, driven by play. You know, um, I was able to translate into starting a company and and making a little bit of money. And I bought a used car, a new used car. And I was like, all right, I'm going to sell my 96 Corolla. This is like 2011. And, um, but before I sell it, I'm going to fix that door handle. It's going to be like, 10 bucks and I'll get another 50 bucks when I sell the car because I don't want the new buyer to feel this kind of broken door handle in their hand. So I go to this used auto parts store. I live downtown and so um, East LA was just over the bridge and um, and my car would get broken into all the time and whenever I broke, uh, whenever the glass was broke, I, I would drive over to East LA and there was this area where you could get used glass, you know, all these used auto parts. So I, I went over there looking for a used auto part and I saw this used auto part store and I pull in and never been there and I walk in and there's this little eight, nine year old boy wearing this bright blue shirt surrounded by all these cardboard boxes. He built an arcade out of cardboard boxes and this was his dad's auto part shop and this was the last day of summer and he'd come in with his dad every day to go to work and his dad couldn't afford a babysitter so he would play with what he had around him which were auto part boxes and so he built this arcade and I mean had a little office it was incredible and he asked me if I wanted to play and I said well how does it work and he's all excited he's like well for for one dollar you get four turns uh, but for two dollars you get a fun pass and you get 500 turns and I'm like ah screaming deal this kid's a hustler that's a great upsell like I know an upsell I've been hustling a one second (laughs) film for 10 years I'm like I'm in here's my two bucks and he gets really excited. He like stamps my hand with a little stamp he has. And uh, he's not ready. Like he, he runs, he's like, wait for a second. He runs back and he comes back um, oh, no. and he's got a crushed up paper ball. No. And he gives me the paper ball and he's like, um, you know, he had a little basketball hoop taped to a box. And, uh, and I would shoot the, pla- the paper ball into the hoop. And when I would score a goal, he would crawl into the box and start pushing little prize tickets out of a little slot that he had carved into the box. And then I could wow. tear off, like just like a real arcade, I could tear off the, the tickets. And then he had a little display built with prizes that were his like matchbox cars and army little guys, you know, and, and I could trade in the tickets for a prize. And like he'd built the whole thing out, you know, it was incredible. And, and then later I couldn't stop thinking about it. I came back and I asked his dad, if I can make a short film about his son's arcade. And I, at this point, like I said, I, I wasn't planning to be in it. I just wanted to make this film about this little boy's arcade. And, and um, his dad said, you know, that would be great, but you should, realize, you should know that you've been my son's first and only customer. Mm. You know, every day he's come to work with me, ask my customers to play, and nobody else had stopped to play. And, and, and so this was the moment where I felt like I saw into the stranger's heart, a perfect stranger's heart, and I knew what they wanted more than anything. And, and this was what I'd been looking for. Some part of me had a, a container for this idea of what I'd been looking for. 
mm. you know, and the idea of choreographing a perfect moment for a perfect stranger suddenly had like, you know, the, the story to express itself. And so I, um, in addition to making a short film about this, uh, Kane's incredible arcade, I choreographed a flash mob, a surprise flash mob of customers to come and make his day. Wow. And, uh, and so that's, that was what the short film was about for me was about creating the perfect moment for this incredible creative entrepreneur who happened to be nine years old. That happened to be nine and happened to have built an entire cardboard arcade. And if you haven't seen this short, I'm sure many of you have seen this. It's, it's an incredible piece. And I think it's, again, what I love about the story, and I'm hoping that my listeners, our listeners here today, can feel is there's a mirror in all of us, right? We, we see and we react to the things and then also tend to things that we didn't tend to in ourselves. And so in seeing this child who's obviously, I mean, he's cardboard sign hustling on the streets in this like industrial neighborhood, trying to get somebody to play this thing for an entire summer. It's not like he started the day before and nobody bit. It was like every weekend, every day, and not a single person played in this arcade until Nirvan. And so Nirvan then saying, I know that if the people I love and the circles that I run in could see this, they would you know, feel the same way that I do. And not only did that flash mob show out and blow Kane's mind and change the trajectory of his life, Change like literally changed the entire trajectory of his life and what he believed was possible and was a reward for his tenacity and belief in play and imagination in himself. It did the same for everybody involved, mm-hmm. right? It really, really was like, wow, this can happen. And so I saw the short for the first time in the hills of Montana with my friend Nirvan where we met. And from there on, it's just, it's been, when people ask me about playing creativity, I often use the short as an intro and say, hey, watch this and understand what it takes and what what also the impact of one-to-one is, right? Mm-hmm. It's I'm going to use my skill and my vision and what I know and also allow my community to participate in this way. So Kane's Arcade leads into the creation of the Imagination Foundation, which we're going to talk about in the next segment. And, you know, I just, yeah, thank you for being here, my guy. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you. All right, folks, you're on better. Keep it locked. We'll be right back with Nirvan Mo. Welcome back to better. At this point, I'm always like, have we already done three portions of these four? And I get uh, nervous that we've run, we're running out of time to share all of the brilliance and beauty. And particularly on this show, as Nirvana alluded to in the last segment, it's about the tools. It really is about like, how do you change a life? How do you change yours? How do you change your external community? What does it look like? Particularly at this junction of the planet. You heard me talk about all of Nirvan's other work uh, around climate change. You know, the last time we physically saw each other in person, I'd got stuck in a layover in Los Angeles. And you were like, what are you doing? Do you want to come paint signs at my house? And I came over and painted Climate March signs with you. And so I never, I never know where your creativity and brilliance and your heart will take you. And I like to be able to overlap into it. And so I would love to hear from you. Of course, we talked about the Imagination Foundation. That's optional. Like people can find that. But what what can people do? What do they have to get out of the way of to be impactful and, and share their gifts? 
what do they have to get out of the way of? Well, I, I think the only thing that would be stopping you is you. I mean, mm. other people might tell you like not to do something or that you're not good at doing something, but they can't really stop you from trying, you know? So like, right. and it's interesting, like if you ask a room of adults and I've gotten to do this, how many of you think of yourself as creative, you know? And the idea of creative is like not, you don't have to be an artist or a filmmaker or a storyteller, but like how do you apply creativity in anything that you're doing? Cause it's universal. Um, mm. And maybe 20% of the room will raise their hands. It depends on the audience, but I, I've gotten to speak to a lot of different kinds of, of audiences and, and then if you ask the same question to a group of kindergartners, everybody raises their hand. And these are the same people uh, that they become later, right? So it's like every child is an artist and how do you stay one as you grow up? And by artist, I mean a creative problem solver, somebody who has dreams and thinks that it's possible to create them, right? When you're a kid, you've got a dream and there's nothing that's going to hold you back from doing it. And then maybe your dream is to be a musician. Maybe it's to be a teacher, maybe it's to be a math, whatever it is. Um, you have some idea and maybe somebody um, says, oh, you know what? You're not that good of a singer, but maybe you should do history or work on something else or, you know, uh, fix cars, whatever it is. Sure. Sometimes it gets, and, and people are so sensitive when they're young and, and we always mm. are sensitive, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of gets unlearned. Creativity in our education system often gets unlearned. And so what I would say is like tapping back into that spirit that you have as an inner, your inner child spirit, getting back into play, what makes you happy? Um, what is the thing that kind of makes you feel most alive? And then learning to walk those steps where you feel aligned with what you're doing and what you want to be doing. and. Um, and just get out of your own way. Like, you know, don't listen to those outside critics. Don't let those outside critics become your inner critic, right? Don't do them that service. Don't carry them with you the rest of your life. Like, just do what you want to do. Life is short. Yeah. Don't let the outside critic become the inner critic. That's critical, critical skill right there. Yeah. And you're right. We are all sensitive and continue to be so. We're just able to, and unfortunately, we create these um, masks and then physical abilities to reflect or deflect. And also, I think when you do something out of love and you create things from a place, you know, of, of purity, like, like really you're really doing what you want to do because you want to do it. Nobody's paying you to do it. It's not about some external factors. It's internally, you're intrinsically motivated internally, you know. And when you make something from that place, it's not even about the result. It's the process because you're enjoying doing it. And so like, if you can be more connected to the process of making than the outcome of what you make, I mean, obviously you want to make something cool or successful, but if you give yourself the space to create without judgment and if it succeeds or not, you start with a blank canvas and you throw some paint on there and it comes out terrible or it comes out amazing, as long as you're focused on the act of trying and creating, you can't lose, mm-hmm. you know, and you get better. You do. It's like a muscle and, and you train it. You, you learn to become better at converting those ideas, those dreams you had as a kid into things that other people can connect with. And, you know, and you don't necessarily knock it out of the park when you start, 
but you get further and you learn the tools and at some point you're able to execute uh, in the way that you imagine. And that's kind of, I would love to see a world where we all feel empowered with creative confidence to go out and try. That's the one. That's it right there. And I think, you know, this is a, a consistent societal norm, which is we only want to see greatness and then we're intimidated by it. Can I share a little wrap, wrap up the Kane's Arcade thing for people who haven't seen it? Because it, it's been a long time. It's of been course. like 10 years since I made that film. But Of course. We posted that film the day after my birthday. I spent my birthday editing it. Uh, so it was April 9th of 2012. And the film went viral right away. And I, I put a little scholarship goal for him to try to raise $25,000, which his dad thought was like ambitious. I was like, well, let's just try. And if we come up short, whatever, we tried. Um, the film got like 5 million views the first few days. It trended worldwide. Uh, the first Saturday that it was open, we started a nonprofit. So kids around the world started making cardboard arcades and setting them up in their driveways and selling fun passes and raising money for causes that, like children's cancer and different causes they cared about, their school, art programs, just all kinds of wonderful things. And I got 10,000 emails from educators saying, you know, we've got a kid just like Kane in our classroom. You know, how can we support them? And that's where the idea of starting a nonprofit grew out of. It wasn't, we didn't go into this, like, let's start a nonprofit and and make a film about this little boy. It was, let's make this kid's day. And then the response from it was beyond anything we could have imagined. And then it's like, oh, well, there's this opportunity to do more. Um, and there's all these other kids out there that that need to have their creativity fostered. So we, we started imagination.org. Um, and we got a quarter million dollar grant from the Goldhurst Foundation, like five days after this film went viral, while we still had all this attention, right? right? So it's like this critical moment where you're empowered when those doors are open to walk through those doors and try to make something happen. And the grant that we got became a matching challenge grant. because we, So we started matching donations dollar for dollar for Kane. And we raised the goal from $25,000 to $250,000 for this little boy. And every dollar that the public was giving Kane, the Golders Foundation gave us a dollar to start a nonprofit to help other kids. And we raised over a quarter million dollars for Kane to go to college. And we launched this nonprofit. And this was five days after the film went viral. So a lot was happening. And um, the day that the first day his arcade was open, the Saturday, a thousand, over a thousand people showed up to play this little boy's cardboard arcade games. <laughs> There was a four and a half hour line that stretched around five city blocks in this junkyard. There were celebrities, there were, you know, movie producers, there were uh, teachers who drove across the country, showed up with their family and were weeping because they were so moved because they had these same feelings when they were a kid and maybe their dad didn't support it the way that Kane's father did. And my dad showed up on this day. My yes. dad took a day off work. He was a workaholic. He showed up. He surprised me. And he got to see this day when I got this quarter million dollar grant, when people were offering me money to come do talks. And then this moment just happened. It was such a joy. And then um, he went back to work and he had a heart attack a few weeks later. And that ended up being the last day that I got to spend with my father. Oof. And it was one of the best days of my life. You know, he got to see my life turn a corner and he knew I was going to be okay. Wow. Um, 
chills and I've heard you share that with me personally before, but thank you for sharing it with everybody else because you never know where a journey's going. You really don't. And you've shared with us multiple times today that the process is it. It really, really is. And so um, I appreciate you bringing your father into this conversation. I'm certain he walks with us right now. Yeah, I wouldn't be here without him. He, he was a single dad who raised me, you know. It's really, really beautiful, brother. And this has been, I don't know, I say this, I say this often, but like I'm emotionally charged. And I feel reinvigorated personally as another person who tries to bring positivity into the world. And we're doing it right in this moment. I hope all of you who are listening have gotten to take some very valuable lessons about how incredible you are and, and what's possible. And if you see Kiefer Sutherland and Barr, just know that he will probably give you a check for 600 bucks if you ask nicely. <laughs> and you've been on better this is my guest, my brother, my family, Nirvan Mullick. Thank you for spending your time with us on the radio here today. Uh, if you are listening to the pod, we, of course, as always, have some more to talk about. And this is a perfect segue into what we're going to discuss uh, again. For the radio guests, Nirvan, thank you for joining us. Love you and appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you're still here. And... <laughs> you mic dropped us. That there's no other way to say that. You emotionally mic dropped us, and I want you to continue exactly where you were. So please. What, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, your dad comes oh, yeah. and sees amongst a four-and-a-half-hour lineup in Los Angeles around the block of everybody who wants to just touch this energy. Yeah. And for a life... You know, I'm sure there's been many conversations with you and your father of trying to explain why Stephen Colbert giving you 12 bucks for a website's important. Yeah. I mean, so Ben Goldhirsch, who was on my board for the one second film nonprofit that I started, which was called the Collaboration Foundation, and he saw me hustle mm. for 10, 12 years trying to move this one second film forward um, with really no, no resources. You know, we raised $130,000 in donations, but that was spread out over 10 years and, you know, building a website and like, you know, and I was like scraping by. Um, so when he saw the film go viral, his wife showed it to him. Right. Like, um, and she's, and she didn't know me and she made him watch it. And she said, I don't know who this, whoever this guy is, like he just did this thing. And Ben saw it and he, he calls me up and he's like, dude, what did you do? Uh, he's like, you shook the world. You shook my wife, you know? And and I was like, I don't know. This is like three days after the film went viral. I was like, I, he's like, I, I told him I want to start a nonprofit. And I was asking him if he knew any companies that might want to put up a matching grant, you know, might want to, because we had this small window of time where like all its attention was on us and we were going to be on these talk shows. And it was like, okay, how can we use the spotlight to shine it on these kids and these other communities that these educators were like emailing me about? Like this really sweet heartbreaking stories but like right. you know how i met kane is unique like it's like a fairy tale story structure but the fact is there's a kane a kid like kane in every classroom in every school we're all a kid like kane you know so it might not have the ingredients of a perfect little fairy tale story but it might and whether it does or not that's not the point the point is these people have dreams they need the tools you know because kane he was behind in math he was he he was um he, he he was slow in reading. He was labeled a slow kid. He had a stutter. 
And then after the film came out, his school started calling him gifted. Mm. And he his grades improved. He stopped stuttering. I just, I mean, my, my whole body just said to me, ain't that some shit? Ain't it? Right? It, I mean, really what we do to people. And I, and I was, I was a bored kid in school, right? I was like getting in trouble. I was paddled in public school. Like I was, I was like, you know, what the fuck? Yeah. I don't, (laughs) Florida public school system. And then I got given some test and labeled a gifted kid. And I got taken out of these public classes that were boring the shit out of me. And I got put into these more playful classes where I got more attention and more time to like foster my creativity and develop. And some of the things that I learned in those special classes are things that I still use today and they gave me this creative confidence. And I'm like, I don't think I'm any more gifted than any of those other kids that I was in school with who got to, who, who didn't get to go to these other classes. And why can't every child be treated as gifted? And cause they are, you know? So like, that's really been the, that was like the mission for the foundation. And, and I was telling Ben Goldhirsch about this on the phone and, um, I was not asking him for money. I was talking to him as a friend. I was like, do you know any, because uh, Ben founded Good and they, they also have Upworthy and he's like a CEO and he knows a lot of companies that want to do good in the world. And he's and a good like, human. That's he's a, a good guy. And I was like, do you know anybody who'd, who'd want to do this? And he's like, well, I'd fund it. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? I don't even know how to ask you for money. And he said, well, let me know what you need. And the answer is yes. And it's beautiful. a few days later, his foundation gave us a quarter million dollars and in a parking lot in East LA with his matching channel. Like that's never happens. But he was like, you know, I saw you work on the one second film. I know you got the hustle. I know you got the drive. And he told me, you might take this quarter million dollars and try to start this foundation and spend it all and it might not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might be the end of it. And he said, that's okay. He said, I know you're going to try. He gave me like the room to fail you know, and to try. And there were times when starting the foundation where we were almost out of money and it was like not going to happen. And then we'd figure out a way and we kept going. And, you know, in a couple years ago, you know, I got to speak at Patal, uh, this great conference that you've also spoken at with like this great audience of really heart-centered entrepreneurs and companies. And and I shared what we want to do with uh, this Global Cardboard Challenge and this foundation that we have. And uh, Vans, the company, the shoe company, like one of my favorite badass companies, uh, they came up to me afterwards and they ended up giving us a million dollars for our foundation as part of this thing called Checkerboard Day to help foster creativity in kids and communities around the world. And, you know, then we merged our foundation with this other nonprofit called the Two-Bit Circus Foundation. Anyway, it's been this journey. But Ben Goldhirsch was like my uh, Nirvan. You know, my first customer who who yeah. bought my fun pass. You know what I mean? And and he did this at a time where my dad got to see it. My dad was actually in the room when I got that call. And mm. my dad was there, you know, just to see all this stuff happening. And um, yeah, it, and you know, I went in to create this perfect moment for this perfect stranger. And then the, this day when Kane's Arcade was opening, all these people were showing up weeping, you know, and, and just... Um, just pure, just the pure heart. 
and um, and my dad got to see that, and I got to see my dad see that, and I got to see in my dad's eyes that he knew his his little boy was gonna be okay, like financially, yes. like I was gonna be, I was gonna find a way to like have health insurance and possibly be able to start a family someday, right? So like there it is. I got to see my dad <laughs> see that, and that was that to this day that's been the best day of my life. Yeah, man. Oh, thank you for sharing it with us and continuing to share these things with the world. You know, I think I would just want to drill down on this and I'm not letting it go this episode at all because intention and whether that's the intention and the honoring of the idea that you're setting down with yourself, the words that you speak in the world. When people talk about manifestation, I think it gives some people the, oh, that's a little too woo-woo for me. But it's the only thing that's ever been in the way of creating a hundred percent an absolute truth across every religion, across every everything. People say prayer. Yeah. You know, people say all sorts of things. They say meditation. And in those meditations, things come to you. And in those prayers, you say things, you wish well onto others consistently. When you turn that into the action that you're going to take in that next day, when you feel that lightning strike as you did when you played for $2 and got your hand stamped that obviously you didn't wash off for weeks. You know, those moments... I've had mine, you know, they're, they're very public. I speak about them a lot as well. And you have an, a choice when you, you know, there's doors to go down. It's like which one feels right. And our intuitive knowing is, is something to behold. It's something to be reckoned with. Yeah. And that clarity of this is what I need to do. I was put here to be in this critical moment in this and I'm going to act. And that can be all of us at all times. So I, I feel that in all of your stories and I feel that in, lessons if you think of your body as an instrument like a guitar right mm. um when a musician who knows what they're doing picks up a guitar the first thing they do is they tune it and they get better at tuning that instrument and you, so like learning to be in tune with these ideas that we have attuning into that um frequency where you can listen to what the ideas want to become mm. and you can kind of tune into this kind of inner voice and learn to collaborate with yourself and create. And at a certain point, as you get better at it, um, weirder ideas start to reveal themselves. And like, I think of ideas as little people, and some of them are shy. And they, they want to see that you know how to treat the um, more outgoing ideas first. And then the shy ones kind of come up and say, hey, I can trust you, I think, um, to like, honor me. And uh, try and take care of me, and 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 so when you you do this, I, at, at some point I feel like the ideas come alive. It, it's awkward at first, but at a certain point, they have a voice and they tell you what they want, like how to make them the way they want to be made. Like ideas have this inherent idea of what they want to become, and if you can tune into them, they will tell you how to do it. Yes, that part. I I think what we're doing right now would be called. Um... Synthesis ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm distilling you, you're distilling me, and we're just continuing to, to riff on this thing. But the tools that you're sharing, um, they're just so, they're so important. And so I guess in this moment, what's alive for my intuition is to ask you about two things. One, because I'm deeply curious, and you set us off at the beginning of we haven't got a chance to catch up, and we haven't. Yeah. And so the first thing I need to know about is Lawn Chair Larry. Yes. Uh, I need to know about how this, I mean, you're 11 years in now on this one? It really depends when you start the timer. Um, okay. In some ways, I started this film in 2004. 
Okay. So in some ways it's 18 years and in other ways, I, I, but it wasn't originally a documentary. So this is the story of um, Larry Walters, who in 1982 attached 42 helium-filled weather balloons to his lawn chair and flew up 16,500 feet over Los Angeles, realizing a dream he had carried with him since he was seven years old. So it was a 25-year lifelong dream to fly with a cluster of balloons. And um, and he finally did it, July 2nd, 1982. And uh, I heard this story in passing. Um, I was walking through a hallway at, 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 when I was at CalArts, and I heard some people talking about some guy who flew in a lawn chair with balloons. And I was like, is that real? <laughs> and I um, early days of the internet, I went home, I looked it up, and I found out not only was it true, but that Larry had spent 25 years doing it, that... Um, and that he committed suicide 11 years later. Um, he shot himself in the heart out in the Angeles National Forest. And when I read that second part, I would say I experienced kind of an emotional whiplash. I was like, what happened? Who was this guy who did this incredibly romantic idea of, I mean, imagine a guy sitting in a lawn chair underneath a cluster of balloons floating three miles above the city. You know, there was a, a TWA pilot who flew a, com- a commercial airline and saw Larry sitting in his lawn chair while flying his plane, like looked out the window and just like, there's Larry. And it was like, what happened? And then Larry, who, you know, was obsessed with his idea since he was a kid and went to Disneyland and saw a lady selling a bunch of Mickey Mouse balloons and was like, you know what? You got enough of those, they would lift you up. Yeah, they would. And he was a kid who never let go of that childhood idea. And, um, you know, he wasn't book smart. He never finished high school. He was a cook in the army in Vietnam. He was doing drawings of the balloons when he was in Vietnam. He said it was like what got him. It was this dream that got him through the war, literally. Uh, But he could never afford to do it. And he tried multiple times. And then he got this job at a film studio called Filmfare. And he was like a nighttime security guard. And he worked there for 10, 10 11 years. And he was dating this woman named Carol. And um, she was terrified of this dream he had. Because, you know. Understandably yeah, so. Completely understandable. You know, and she, she was like, so he put it off. He didn't do it. But after 10 years, she could see he was still thinking about it. And um, he actually started doodling on a placemat you know, and, and drew out this plan for to do it. She said, all right, Larry, I think you have to do this, you know, and I have to support you in doing it. So she, she offered to help pay for his parachute and flight lessons and to pay for his project um, with the deal that um, after he did it, they'd get engaged and after he paid her back, they'd get married. Oh, and so they did it from her backyard in San Pedro. They didn't go out into the desert, you know. They were like, let's do it from the backyard uh, we're closer to a hospital if anything goes wrong. Um, and uh, and it's just cost less to than having to truck out all this equipment because it, it was a bigger operation. You might be imagining small little balloons, but these are weather balloons. They're about seven or eight feet in diameter. And each balloon could lift about 14 pounds. And he had 42 of them that went up about 180 feet, like 16-story building. Like you could see, you could see it from about, 10 miles away, the balloon sticking out of this backyard. It was epic. I, I, I almost want to stop us here, and yeah. only because I know that this is coming. Yeah. 
that we're going to get to experience this entire story. And yeah. is there, I mean, is there any better analogy for what we're looking for in a life partner? Well, no, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I've, I've gotten much deeper into it, mm-hmm. you know, because um, part of the big mystery is like what happened because they didn't get married. You know, he did achieve his dream, but it wasn't enough, you know, and um, and you can see this um, interview of Larry on the, the David Letterman show. It's on YouTube. Okay. And Letterman, at, and, and this is just after he's finished his flight. He's got book deals, movie deals, quits his job. And um, Letterman asks him, how does it feel to have lived your lifelong dream? And Larry says, I've achieved inner peace. And the audience kind of laughs. And he's like, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm a happier man for it. And um, so to me, it was like, what, what happened? Yeah. What happened to a man who lived their lifelong dream, achieved inner peace, and then 11 years later, put a bullet in his heart. There's something to be learned from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to see and hear the rest of it. Well, um, a couple of things. So I, I started writing this as a scripted film in 2004. I did not know that. Yeah, I thought I, it was always going to be a doc. No, it, it was initially going to be a scripted movie. So I, I wrote the screenplay. And I had a producer, this guy who produced about Schmidt attached, and we were trying to get it made, but I, I just didn't have the chops yet. I couldn't get the funding, couldn't, you know. Sure. Um, and then after Kane's Arcade, um, I was, I, and, I, and then I, I spent a year and a half starting the Imagination Foundation. After I got that going, um, I decided to go back to filmmaking, and I wanted to go back to this project, and I wanted to go back and do more research and learn more about Larry, because I, I hadn't seen the Letterman video at the time when I wrote the screenplay. It wasn't available yet. And then I saw it years later and I was like, you know, I didn't quite get Larry. Like I, I wrote too much from who I was. Like I put too much of myself in and I didn't have answers for a lot of questions. I just imagined these answers. And I had met with Larry's mother back when, before I wrote the screenplay just to get her blessing. And she told me at the time that she had these top secret journals of Larry's, these very personal journals and that she would give me her blessing to write the movie, the screenplay, but she wouldn't share the journal. She said that she didn't, you know, they were very private and she was going to write a book about Larry. I said, okay. So I, I did my research. I read every newspaper article I could find in the library. I, I, I literally went to the library and got the microfiche, you know, back yes. in the day and was doing all of that. And I wrote the screenplay and then um, cut to 10, 11 years later, I've made this... Um, viral short film, started this foundation. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to storytelling. And I reach out back out to Larry's mother, Hazel. And um, she remembers me, you know, and she's like 90 some years old now. And she's like, you know, I've had um, a heart attack. I've had two strokes since I've seen you last. I've really slowed down. I never wrote the book about Larry. Uh, And so she said, if you still want to see those journals, you can. She said, I just don't want my son's story to stay in a box. And I got to go and see the read the journals and get to know Larry deeper. And then she, and I got to interview her. Um, and she told me that she actually worked at Film Fair, which is where she got Larry the job there after he got back from Vietnam. She was a receptionist at the at this film studio, and she told me that several of his coworkers went and took the day off when Larry finally did it because they all knew about Larry's dream. You know, he'd been one of the security guard for 11 years. And they right. went and they filmed it. 
they filmed the flight on 35 millimeter film. So I went on this quest and I ended up finding the 35 millimeter negative in a garage of one of Larry's coworkers. And then I was like, all right, this, I'm going to make this into a documentary first and, and then a screenplay afterwards. Um, so I got to see, I got to see this footage of something I've been dreaming about and it's, it's spectacular. I mean, it's, it's a dream that this exists and that, uh, the guy who gave it to me, he, he gave it to me and then he had a heart attack two weeks later and died and everything in his garage got thrown away. So it was really just lucky that we got it. And I got to show the footage to Larry's mother before she passed away. So she got to see it. Um, and the thing about Larry is like, you know, he planned this, he dreamed of this for 25 years. He brought a camera up there with him mm-hmm. and he didn't take a single picture. Wow. He said that it was just so beautiful and awesome that he didn't think a photograph would ever capture it, what it oh. meant to him. Oh, that part. That part is what got me. I mean, you, you think about the idea of creating a perfect moment and just keeping it for yourself. Mm. You know, like, I, I, I've grown to also love to share perfect moments but there's part of me that also loves to keep some of them to myself. And you just kind of have to learn which ones are the right ones to share and which ones are the right ones to keep. So I just had a flashback as you're saying that. And you and I and our dear friend Devin, um, an autistic man who's uh, an incredible artist, were mountain biking around a lake in Montana <laughs> together. Yes. And Devin had this giant crash and you and I were both like, oh, my God, we are in the middle of the woods. There's no reception, right? Or is he okay? And he literally rubber banded up. Yeah. He was totally, totally fine. But I remember us stopping not that much further and being at the lake. And in that moment, I've got a picture of us. I took a selfie of the three of us, I remember. And we were looking out at the lake. And what I often say to myself in those points is because of my attention deficit, I'm like, I want to shoot everything. And I'll say, I use the analogy to myself and my internal dialogue of my mind camera. Mm-hmm. It's okay that this is just for your mind camera. Yeah. yeah, yeah and I yeah. say it all the time to myself because I go to like frame the shot and it's like, it's got to be for instant. It's got to be for the things. I'm like, you know, totally. This, this, this is just for your mind camera. Totally. I've started drawing again and I, I've started drawing moments from my mind camera that I didn't take pictures of. Mm. It's been really sweet to kind of uh, express it in a way. But, um, but can you imagine somebody doing what Larry did today and not taking a picture of it, not live streaming it, not getting Red Bull to like sponsor it? No. Like he, he went into debt, you know, and Carol went into debt to fund this dream. It was like pure passion driven, childlike logic. He brought a BB pistol up with him to shoot out the balloons. You know, it did not go according to plan. He almost died. He survived. It's like, this epic, epic love story adventure. And I'm so excited about the documentary. I started working on that. You know, I've been working on that one for now eight or nine years. Um, and uh, it, it got paused because I, I couldn't get an interview with Carol. And I refused, I refused to finish the film without at least having a chance to talk to her. Um, but she was... In, in that part, what is the tenacity that finally gets you to her? Well, patience... Um, I built a relationship with her off camera, but she had a boyfriend who didn't want her to do it. Right. 
And she is shy. She has anxiety. She's a very private person. She never wanted to be on camera. It terrified her, the idea of doing the interview. So this was, but she was willing to do it, but the boyfriend, and she could not figure out a way to do it. And um, yeah, I, I met with her in person. Larry's sister introduced us after Larry's mother passed away and Larry's sister was in town for the her, Hazel's funeral and they had me come over to a diner. Uh, she called me up. She's like, do you want to meet Carol in person? I was like, yes. Um, can I tell a quick backstory of synchronicity? You can. So I wrote that screenplay about Larry's um, flight in 2004. And I hadn't talked to Carol. And I had to imagine where they went on their first date. And I knew Larry loved the Angeles National Forest and space and, and Mount Wilson. So for their first date, I had them go up to the Mount Wilson Observatory where there is this um, Hooker 100-inch telescope, which was the largest telescope at the time. And it was um, the telescope that Hubble literally used to discover that the universe is expanding and came up with the Big Bang Theory, like the origin of space and time. And and there was a simple wooden chair that he was sitting in up there um, that he was sitting in when he discovered where the universe, like when it started. And so I had Larry and Carol on their first date go up and look at this observatory and look at that little chair. And, um, and a couple months after I wrote the screenplay, I got to talk to Carol on the phone and I said, Oh, Carol, I have so many questions. You know, first off, where do you guys go on your first date? And she said, Oh, he took me up to the Mount Wilson observatory. Yes. And I said, well, are you kidding? That's, that's where I wrote you guys, uh, in the screenplay. And she said, Oh my God, you're channeling him. You're channeling Larry. And then she started telling me all kinds of stories that have never been shared about Larry. And um, I just started getting really excited about just getting to know her because she's like the Rosetta Stone. Like she's the only one. It was really Larry, their friend Ron, and Carol who were kind of like the three amigos who pulled this off. And Ron committed suicide a few years after the project. Um, And he had schizophrenia and... um, was having a bad episode and was like surrounded by police and just one of those situations where he took his own life. And then, um, and then Larry 11 years later. So there's all of this kind of, you know, I think like suicide mental health is this layer that we do not talk about very often in our lives. And it's not something I expected to find so deeply in the story of a man who, did this dreamlike thing of like flying uh, childlike wonder, right? But what I'm drawn to in the story is it has what seems to me like the full ups and downs of the human experience mm. contained in one little story. Um, and I think we all have that, you know, like if I go deeper into my story, like there's suicide in my family, you know, my, my father, his father committed suicide, I think a month before I was born. You know, um, so, and it's not something my family ever talked about. I was always told my grandfather had a brain aneurysm, you know, and it wasn't until like I was in like much older that they finally told me what had happened. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so that's Larry's lawn chair. Um, I can't wait. uh, And before you move past the mental health piece, I think, thank you, first of all, for sharing it. Secondly, the normalization of it and all of these conversations. Mental health is health. It's just health. Yeah. It's just health. It's harder to see when 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 somebody's feeling broken 
than when a, a, a bone is broken. Yeah, because they're but taught not to be able to tell. Yeah. That's where we societally say, don't you dare, or you're going to be ostracized, you will lose your job, you will lose your loved ones, you will lose everything, instead of the truth, which is if you share with people who really love you and give them the opportunity to share up for you, show up for you, rather, um, it changes your trajectory. And, you know, directly close to me, my direct family, my own attempt, um, which was luckily only three quarters hearted. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I, I couldn't understand it anymore. And those moments are why we have community and people. And for anybody listening, there are resources for you. Please do use them. They will be listed in this episode uh, for you to reach out. Because when we share stories and narratives of people, it's for us all to heal. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, what you shared about Larry and the love and the heartbreak and the confusion and the deep curiosity is another mirror. It's like, mm-hmm. why? Why do these things happen with us, to us, for us uh, in moments? And um, you asked a question earlier, and we're going to close on that question, um, which is, can you imagine if somebody did what Larry did now without sponsorship and a, you know, a GoPro strapped to their head, essentially, et cetera? And yeah, I can, because I get to watch you move in the world. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm filming a lot of what I'm doing, so I, I don't think it's that pure. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> It genuinely is. Oh, come on. And I mean, the audience is like giving you the side eye right now too. I can feel them because it's a who dedicates, you know, at this point, 18 years of their life and their own time and resource. Your, your time is your resource to telling a story of what would be a byline now. And the importance of this story in our own journeys is incredible. So you do. You know, you, you of course went to look for money, but when it didn't come, you didn't put it down. No, and and that's different than most people's journeys. So I honor you and and really respect the way that you show up in the world, man. And I'm so excited that I got to share you, first one of many on here on Better um, and with the world. And if there's anything that you want to share with us in closing, I'd love to hear it. Hmm. Um. I what what should I share in closing? Um. I I guess I'll share something because I, I was thinking about what what your podcast is feeling about, you know, and kind of like talking about how, like, to me, it's like, how do we diversify our happiness portfolio? Right. And so it's not just for me, it's like, cause I haven't been financially successful yet, you know, like, like I'm not defined by that. And it's like, I have to work on these projects. They're going to take a long time. I want to do them, but I want to be happy along the way. I don't want, I don't want to wait until like there's an achievement to feel like I deserve happiness. And I feel like in talking to other people, often you can see what you should say to yourself. And so I'll share that I have a friend who's been in a really hard place recently, um, like suicidal, depressed. And it was triggered from romantic love that wasn't working out. And he was trying to make it work out. And he was telling this woman, um, you know, I I love you for who you are. Like you don't have to do something for me to love you. Like I, I just deeply love you without your accomplishments. And it wasn't enough and the relationship didn't work out and he was feeling so beaten up about it. And he's a very talented human being. And I said to him, you know, what you said to her is what you need to be saying to yourself. You need to love yourself unconditionally before you can expect somebody else to. And you need to learn how to be happy along the way, like investing more in the process than in the outcome. Um, but still being invested in the outcome. It's like this beautiful dance where you, um, 
you know, there's this phrase, uh, hang on tightly, let go loosely. Mm. Um, and, uh, or let go lightly, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, hang on tightly, let go lightly. That's the saying it, it rhymes. So, you know, it's true. Okay. Um, in any case, uh, for me, it's just been figuring out like how to allow myself more balance and more joy. Um, cause there were times when I was working on the one second film where it was just too much. I was trying to do too much and, um, and it was just me putting too much on my own shoulders, right. you know, like nobody else cares really. Like if I finish this thing or I don't, I mean, some people still email me and say, Hey, what, what happened to my $2? You know, when is the one second <laughs> film going to be finished? And I'm like, look, I'm going to get back to it. And if anybody out there donated to the one second film, I should say, thank you. Um, I'm going to come back and finish it. If I do not get hit by a bus, if I do get hit by a bus, Jesus, we'll have wood over here. We'll have a screening at, at my funeral. We'll have the premiere of the one second film at my funeral service. And, uh, okay. and that would be, I would be a happy man, like to die and to have my one second film, our one second film that, that people around the world have helped make uh, screen. Um, that would be lovely. I do want to try to finish it while I'm alive. Great. Um, and do some other stuff, but, um, you never, sure you is. never know when your stories are going to end. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, with my father, I learned that like, I wasn't always in a great place with my dad. You know, there were years we didn't talk. Um, and he was bipolar and we finally got to a place where like he finally took some medicine and the last few years were lovely. And, and he got to come to my sister's wedding and he got to come to the Canes arcade kind of big day. You know, and and um, and I always leave. I've, I learned to never leave a situation with somebody you love and care about in a place where, if that story ended at that moment, you wouldn't feel good about it. Right. So maybe I'll that's, leave this one with that. That's it. And I'm I'm not going to reflect it because it just is. It's incredibly important for your own peace. In, in the piece of those around you. And that one second film is a lot more than 24 pictures at this point. Hey, one second can last a lifetime. It really, really can. There's so know. much you can do in every small little moment. You know, you might walk by a, somebody in a, in a junkyard. You might hear a conversation in passing. Uh, and if something sparks your curiosity about it and you go back and you look a little deeper, you might find something you didn't expect that could become something for you and in your life that you couldn't have possibly imagined. That, that as well. Well, I can't wait to have you back. And now we have to see each other in person. Yeah. Three years, didn't is, get to three talk years is unacceptable. Rick film. We, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> so I will, folks, you will get much more Nirvan. Brother, again, thank you for being with us on Better Today. Love you and appreciate thank your you. time. Love you too. Appreciate what you're doing, Mark. Thank you, my man. And folks, you know, we're here every single week with people who bring us. I mean, again, I always feel selfish in this moment because I'm like, yo, I'm good for my week now. I'm so ready to go. Uh, But keep it locked. Share away and make sure to follow Nirvana on all the platforms and keep up with the stories because it is an evolving one second. You've been on better. I'm your host, Mark Brandt. We were with Nirvana. Thank you.